Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. We haven't had the chance to meet yet. My name's Luke, and I get to serve as one of the ministers here at Plainfield Christian Church. How are your brackets looking? Yeah, mine too. Uh, <laughs> uh, so my wife, Rebecca, is from Kansas, so she is a true blue Jayhawk through and through. I'm a diehard Missouri Tiger, and so, you know, we've had the games on in the Proctor House, and yesterday, after those two particular disasters, um, my oldest son, Judah, is sitting there next to us watching the game, uh, tears welling up in his eyes, you know, just this tender moment as a child. And after both losses, he said, why do both of our teams always lose? <laughs> so Purdue fans, um, if y'all need a hug today, I'm here for you. No, uh, no judgment, I'm just here, okay? Um, we're gonna be in Mark chapter five today, and in the same way that I've had a funeral over the last 24 hours for my basketball hopes and dreams, Jesus is at a funeral here in Mark chapter five, and Jesus has a lot of fun at funerals. And Jesus has a lot of fun at funerals. Now, when I first got into ministry, I can remember hearing all these preachers talking about how they'd way rather do a funeral than a wedding. And I was a little confused by that. I didn't quite understand it, but now that I've had some experience, I understand and I actually totally agree with them. So to just kind of let you backstage a little bit, in a preacher's mind, like, there's a lot going on at a wedding, right? You got this bride who's been planning out this day for two decades, and she's got already like her fairy tale meticulously scripted going on up in here. You're trying to juggle multiple mothers-in-law and flower deliveries and trying to coax that little toddler down the aisle, and you got the groomsmen over here who think they're comedians, and there's just, a, you got these long words you're trying to pronounce in a precise order. Who's got to walk down the aisle? When? Where are they going to sit? And it's like, listen, I, I could preach the world's greatest wedding sermon in the history of weddings. Weddings. And when it was over, nobody would care, right? Nobody comes to listen to the preacher. As a preacher at a wedding, all you can do is screw it up. That's all you got. But at a funeral, like a, a funeral's awesome. You get to like preach the gospel of hope to people in their dark moments. You get to have these great, amazing conversations. And so the old preacher saying is that it's easier to bury them than marry them. <laughs> Just being totally honest with you this morning. And... Uh, my father-in-law, he's been a preacher for several decades now, and uh, you know, so when he'd come back from doing a funeral, we'd say, hey, how was it? He'd say, yeah, kind of dead. <laughs> and you might think that's morbid, and it might be, but there's also a nugget of truth there because Jesus has a lot of fun at funerals. We're in Mark chapter five, and if you remember, in Mark chapter five, Jesus is in the middle of a very, very long Day. He started off this day teaching to these big crowds all day long. Nightfall comes. He and his disciples decide they're going to row their boat across the Sea of Galilee. While they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, a big storm comes up, threatens to drown all of them. Jesus calms the storm. They finally get to the other side of the lake just in time to be greeted by this demon-possessed guy. Jesus gets out. He casts out 6,000 demons out of this man. No big deal. Drowns a herd of 2,000 pigs. The villagers say, we don't want that kind of power around here. They send Jesus back across. Across the lake. So Jesus and his disciples get back in their boat. They row all the way back across the lake, and that's where we find ourselves here in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Same deal. I'll read the words in white. You read the words in yellow. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. 
Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed all around him. So here's the scene. Jairus comes up to Jesus. He's this influential local figure, kind of on the Jewish religious scene. He's in charge of the local synagogue, and he's got a lot at stake here, but his daughter is sick. And so he pockets his pride. He forgets his fear. He falls right on his knees in front of Jesus, and he asks for help. And Jesus says, okay. So Jesus and Jairus get up. They're heading to Jairus' house, presumably to heal Jairus' daughter. And the whole crowd is going with them. I mean, everybody's just buzzing. Hey, we're going to go see a miracle. You want to come along? Hey, do you think he can do it? I don't There's no way he can do that. Of course. Did you hear what he did with the demon-possessed guy? Like, there's buzzing. But there's one person there who's not supposed to be there. Take a look. Verse 25. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, some of you can empathize. Some of you have suffered from a long season of chronic pain. You know how excruciating that is. But for this particular woman, the physical pain of her bleeding wasn't even the worst part. Because of this gynecological issue, Jewish law said that she was rendered ritually unclean. Now, here's what that meant for her normal everyday life. It means she can't make love to her husband if her husband is even still wanting to be married to her after this 12 years. It means that um, if she has kids, she's not allowed to hold them. If she doesn't have kids, she'll probably never be able to have kids. It means that um, they didn't have like disposable sanitary products. She probably smelled really bad. And this is a really private, sensitive issue, but the whole village would have known about it because they would have seen her go down to the lake every day to wash her clothes and to wash her bedding all over again. She can't go worship at the temple if she even accidentally bumped into anybody. If she touched someone, they would be rendered ritually unclean. And she was flat broke. She'd spent everything she had on doctors. And now she has no money left and almost no hope. But then she heard these rumors. She heard rumors of this this healer who helped people and he'd helped that demon-possessed guy and he'd helped the leper and he'd helped the paralyzed man and maybe, maybe, just maybe, he could help her too. And so she comes to Jesus. Now, notice here that Mark, the way he tells this story is absolutely brilliant. He kind of draws an intentional contrast between these two people who come to Jesus, between Jairus and the woman. For starters, Jairus is male, she's female, obviously. But next we'll see that Jairus is wealthy, she's run out of money. Then we see that Jairus, he is the leader of the local synagogue. He's in charge of it, the very same synagogue that she is disqualified from attending. Jairus, because he's a man of stature, he comes and he speaks to Jesus face to face, but she wouldn't dare do something like that. We're gonna see in a minute that Jairus' daughter, that he wanted Jesus to heal, she's 12 years old. So 12 years ago, his daughter's life began, but 12 years ago, her life began to end. A big contrast between these two people, and yet they have one core element in common. They both have a need, and they brought their need to Jesus. That's it. They both have a need, and they brought their need to Jesus. It's a pretty remarkable thing. So here's what happens. The, the woman, I don't know what's going through her mind, but she thinks, okay, uh, this healer, 
He's coming to town. There he is. I see the crowd coming, and she's thinking, maybe if I could, if I, if I, if I could just touch him. I, I, I know he could heal me, and, and I know I'm not supposed to, but, but they say he's kind, and they said he's gentle, and I'm sure he won't hurt me, and maybe he won't send me away, but, but, but what if the people see me? And so she goes, and, and, and the crowd's coming closer. Oh, here she comes, and, and she finally just lunges, and, and just barely, the tip of her finger grazes the edge of his garment. And just like that, she can tell it worked. And, and she's amazed, but she tries to turn around. She tries to sneak away before anybody sees that she's been there. But Jesus, Jesus is not going to let that happen. A voice pierces the silence and says, who touched me? Take a look here. Mark writes this. He says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, this is amazing. We've seen this kind of thing before happening in the Gospel of Mark, that normally if you or I were to accidentally touch this woman or she was to touch us, we would be rendered ritually unclean. But this woman touches Jesus, and instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the woman is made clean. When King Jesus shows up on the scene manifesting the holiness of God, the flow of impurity works backwards. That's why you're never too sinful for Jesus. When Jesus comes in contact with this demon-possessed guy, Jesus is not corrupted. The demon-possessed guy is made whole. When Jesus touches a corpse, Jesus is not corrupted. The corpse is resurrected. When Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, Jesus is not defiled or degraded. Rather, the flow of impurity works backwards and his holiness overrides their impurity and a flow of grace and honor and restorative love bursts out from Jesus like a tidal wave and absolutely overwhelms them. When this woman comes and she just touches Jesus, the sheer force of his majesty makes her whole again. I love this scene. I love this healing. And the woman comes when Jesus calls her out, and Mark says she fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and she told him the whole truth. And Jesus looks at her, he locks eyes, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. Um, psychologists like to talk about what they call the looking glass self. It's a theory of socialization. And the looking glass self uh, basically says that we determine how we think about ourselves based on how we think other people think about us. Um, I know that's confusing. But in other words, basically, you will become what you think the most important people in your life think about you. 
okay? Like as a sidebar, that's why social media is so incredibly powerful, right? It's not saying don't be on social media. I'm just saying it's an incredibly powerful identity-forming tool, especially in the tender, soft psyches of our young people. So for our young people who are growing up on social media, like it's no wonder that so many of them are in the midst of an existential identity crisis and they're crumbling under the weight of these performative lifestyles because they're throwing themselves out there for everybody to see so that they can either be liked or disliked or filtered accordingly. They're desperately appealing to the opinions of their peers in search of acceptance and affirmation. This is the looking glass theory. The looking glass self says that you will view yourself the way that you think others view you. For example, let's hypothetically say that the four most important people in your life are your dad, your kids, your ex, and your best friend from high school, okay? Your dad, your kids, your ex, and your best friend from high school. Now, if you perceive how those people view you, that you think your dad thinks you're a failure and didn't live up to his expectations, and your kids think you're fun but inconsistent, and your ex thinks you're selfish, and your best friend thinks you're hilarious, if you perceive that that's what they think about you, you will begin to think of yourself accordingly, and you will become some mix of those four things. The problem, of course, with this is that none of us really know how other people perceive us. We can only get little hints of it. We never really know how we appear to other people. For example, let's say you're in English class and you have to turn in an English paper and the teacher, she reads your paper and thinks, wow, this student has a ton of potential. I wanna give them some really good constructive feedback so that we can help unlock that potential. But you get your English paper back and all you see is red markings all over. And so you think, oh, my, my teacher doesn't think I'm any good at this. And so then you begin to view yourself as a poor student, even though that's the opposite of what the actual truth was. It's the looking glass theory. Here's why this matters. Because here in Mark chapter 5, this bleeding woman, she's just been healed, and she's trying to get away without being seen. She's trying to sneak away unnoticed. But Jesus doesn't let her off the hook. Because Jesus knows if she would have gone away unseen... Who knows what she would have spent the rest of her life thinking. She might have spent the rest of her life thinking, I'm the one who stole healing. If Jesus would have seen me, he wouldn't have wanted to heal me. I had to sneak up because anybody who actually sees me thinks I'm dirty and disgusting and unlovable. And yet Jesus looks at her and with just one word, he shatters those lies. He looks at her and he says, daughter, Look right at me. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then no matter the lies the enemy wants to whisper to you, no matter the words that have been said to you that crushed you and shaped how you thought about yourself, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you are God's daughter. You are God's son. You are his child whom he loves. And he sent his son to die for you. That is his opinion of you, and he is the most important person in your life. So let that opinion be the one that defines you. You are God's child. I love this scene. And yet, this is an amazing moment, but think about how easily this miracle could have not happened. I mean, think about the excuses that this woman or Jairus could have given to not come to Jesus. This woman, she could have said, well, I guess this is all there is. 
Spent all my money on doctors. I've tried everything the world has to offer. It ain't doing it for me. I guess I'm just stuck. This is as good as it's ever gonna get. She could have said, well, healing is for other people, but it's not for me. I know Jesus can do that for them, but I don't think he'd wanna do it for somebody like me. She could have said, well, some other time. I mean, Jesus is clearly exhausted. The guy looks like he hasn't slept in two days. I mean, look at the crowd. Look how many people there are around, and he's clearly busy. They're, they're going somewhere. I'll come back at a more convenient moment. She could have said, I'm not good enough. I mean, of course Jesus would go help Jairus. Jairus is a person of status. He's charismatic. Everybody likes Jairus. He has money. I have no money. Nobody likes me. I'm unclean. I'm not worthy of being helped and healed. I'm not good enough for that. They could have said, what will other people think? Jairus was a local leader in the Jewish religious scene. Jesus spent his whole ministry taking off the Jewish religious leaders. These are Jesus, Jairus' co-workers and his bosses and his friends. And, and, and Jesus is hacking all these people off. Jairus' reputation, maybe even his job is at stake here. And yet, both he and the woman have the faith to overpower their excuses. And that faith was the conduit through which Jesus' power could flow. So my question for you is, do you have faith in Jesus to overpower your excuses? Does your faith in Jesus overpower your excuses? Now, this is a beautiful scene. Jesus heals the woman. He looks at her. He says, daughter. But don't forget who's standing there watching this whole thing happen. Jairus is. And I wonder what he thought when he heard that word, daughter. I don't know what he thought. But if I'm Jairus, I'm thinking, yeah, great. But what about my daughter? The clock's ticking. And sure enough, verse 35 says this. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? And so now Jairus, for all his power, all his money, all his influence, has encountered the one problem that money can't fix, death. Death is the great bully on the playground of life who picks a fight with each of us. And yet look what Jesus does here, verse 36. What Jesus does, this is audacious. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. This is crazy. Jairus has just found out that his 12-year-old daughter is dead and that Jesus could have been there to stop it, but he wasn't because he stopped for some random lady on the street instead. And Jesus has the audacity in the middle of that moment to walk right up and grab Jairus by his shoulders and look him dead in the eyes and say, no fear, trust me. Listen, I've done a lot of funerals. I've had the amazing privilege of getting to be with people in the room while they take their last breath. And never once in one of those sacred moments have I looked at the family and said, ah, don't worry, I got this. But Jesus does. What kind of man is this? Verse 37 says, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Listen, when you walk by faith, you will always encounter the hostility of people who walk by sight. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. 
He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up. Don't you wish your kids got out of bed that easy? <laughs> and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. She's like your classic 12-year-old middle schooler just wakes up kind of wandering around hungry looking for something to eat. And she's like, feed the girl, you know? It's an incredible moment. Jesus knows how to have fun at a funeral, you guys. And so far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus assert his power over demons. He's asserted his power over disease. He's asserted his power over nature. And now Jesus asserts his power over even death itself. And here's why that matters for you. Um, several years ago, there was a resident of Greenville County, South Carolina, and she received a letter from the Department of Health and Human Services, and the letter said this. The letter said, your food stamps will be stopped effective March 1992 because we received notice that you passed away. <laughs> may God bless you. <laughs> you may reapply if your circumstances change. And we chuckle at this, right, because we know the circumstances don't change, do they? There's tracks going into the graveyard, but there are no tracks coming out. That's just how this goes, isn't it? And when we see a, a miracle like this, we see Jesus do something incredible, we think, wow, that's great. We see it, though, kind of as, a, as an interruption to the natural order, and then we just kind of go back to the way things are. But it's actually just the opposite. There's a theologian by the name of Jürgen Moltmann. Tell your mom thank you. She didn't name you Jürgen Moltmann, by the way, okay? Jesus' healings, he says, when you see a miracle like this, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. That means that you and I are so fallen that sometimes we can get sucked into thinking that sin and suffering and disease and death are just the natural way of life. This is just how things go, and Jesus' miracles are just the nice little interruption, but the story is exactly the opposite. No, no, no. Death is the interruption. Sin is the interruption. Divorce is the interruption. Cancer is the interruption. Disease is the interruption. Darkness is the interruption. Life and light are the story of the kingdom of God. They were what was, and they are what will be when Jesus is king. This is it. And so we see these two stories. How do we get there, though? We see these two stories. We see Jairus and, and the bleeding woman, a story of death and a story of blood. And the next time in the Gospel of Mark that we're going to see a story of death and blood is when Jesus himself dies. And there will be no funeral. And it looked kind of dead. Because there's tracks going into the graveyard, but there are no tracks coming out, right? But we're here this morning because we believe that the story changed on that weekend. We're here this morning because we have the audacity to actually believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came down, he died, and he was laid in the tomb, and he was dead, dead, dead. Not some kind of fake dead. He was really dead. His body lay there cold and stiff for one day, two days, but on the morning of the third day, the Father from heaven whispered, get up, my son. 
And Acts chapter two says this, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And from that moment forward, the story changed forever. Yeah, there's still pain. There's still suffering. There's still death, isn't there? I mean, this woman who was bleeding and Jesus healed her, that's fantastic, praise God. But I'm pretty sure she still had hard days. And there would come another day when her body would betray her again, like it does for all of us. And, and the woman, the little girl that Jesus raised from the dead, praise God, what an incredible miracle. But I'm pretty sure that wasn't the last funeral to happen in that house. Someday they'd have a funeral for her mom and Someday there'd be a funeral for Jairus. And someday, even for her, she'd be lying on her deathbed yet again and there would be another funeral. But somehow, something was different. Something had changed. I read a story this week about how during World War II, um, when Hitler conquered France and he shut the borders down to keep people from escaping, there was this one little French border town that people just kept disappearing from. And like, and the Nazis are seeing this little French village and the population is decreasing dramatically and so the Nazis go search for an answer and it turns out that this little French town had a cemetery that straddled the border with a neighboring free country. And so the locals in this little French village opened up a gate in the cemetery wall and they just kept having funerals. People would go to the tombs and never come back. They'd just keep on walking from their funeral into freedom. Now, do I even need to preach that or can you get there on your own? <laughs> Man, there's a funeral that leads to freedom in there. It's the kind of funeral you show up at with faith and Jesus meets you there at that funeral and Jesus has a good time at that funeral. And when you come to that funeral with faith, you find life instead of death. And it's called baptism. Your baptism is your funeral. Paul says this in Colossians chapter two. He says, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness, having been buried with him in baptism. Your baptism was your funeral, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Your baptism was your funeral. We've talked before about the doctrine of union with Christ, about how when you follow Jesus, what is true of Jesus becomes true of you, that we're like a dollar bill in a book. And all of a sudden, where the book goes, the dollar goes. And what is true of the book becomes true of the dollar. Same thing, when you follow Jesus, you're united with him, and what is true of him becomes true of you. That because he is pure, you are pure. And because he lives, you can live. And because he died, you died. And because he was raised, you will be raised. What is true of Jesus becomes true of you. And Paul says in the scripture that the moment that happens, the moment we are united with Christ, is your baptism. Romans chapter six, he says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Your baptism was your funeral. So if you're a follower of Jesus right now and you're thinking back to the moment of your own baptism, that's your funeral and now this is your story. My very favorite verse in the whole Bible might be Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. That was my funeral, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, this last week in the Proctor House, um, we had one of those days. 
You guys ever have those days? You know what I'm talking about? Like where everything that can go wrong does go wrong. Yes, you guys have been there before. And listen, I love our three little boys. They are wonderful children, but they're also wretched little sinners who desperately need Jesus, right? Okay? Even the preacher's kids, y'all. And it had just been one of those days, and so we put the boys to bed. And I was sitting there on Calvin's bed. And Cal, he's our three-year-old, our middle boy, and uh, he's a wonderful kid, but... I just kind of wanted to get inside his brain and hear what was going on. And I, I said, Cal, buddy, um, why do you sometimes have a hard time obeying? And little three-year-old Cal said, I think I need a new heart. <laughs> I've got good news for you, buddy. <laughs> Man, the Bible says that when you follow Jesus, he takes out your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh, that, that the old you dies. It's not like when you follow Jesus that he just makes you a little bit nicer and a little bit happier and a little bit more spiritual of the old you. No, he kills the old you and he raises you up. And listen, y'all would have hated the old Luke. He was arrogant, he was lazy, he was selfish, he was consumed with greed and lust and unholy ambition. But praise God, you're never gonna meet that guy. He's dead and gone. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. And yeah, the old Luke, he tries to rear his ugly head every once in a while, but now Christ lives in me. That's your story. Your baptism was your funeral. I mean, look around at the walls right now. Look at these cards from last week on the walls. Look at these stories. These are stories of resurrection. We're a resurrection community, dead and alive, lost and found. I love the resurrection story of Ken Parker. This is Ken Parker. Back in 2017, Ken was at the now infamous Unite the Right rally where that car from the white supremacist rammed into that crowd and hurt so many people. Ken Parker was a speaker at that rally. Ken himself was a white supremacist. He was a grand dragon in the KKK, and he decided that wasn't radical enough for him, so he became a self-proclaimed Nazi. And uh, not long after that Unite the Right rally, um, Ken Parker and his fiance, they saw an African-American man one evening just grilling out some food by the pool at their apartment complex. And that man, his name was Pastor William McKinnon. And, and even though Ken's arms and legs bore tattoos of swastikas and Confederate flags and the phrase white pride, Pastor William McKinnon struck up a conversation with Ken, invited him to sit down and eat. And sure enough, Ken and his fiance did. And over the next few weeks, a friendship began to grow. Pastor McKinnon, he didn't label Ken, he didn't argue with Ken, didn't attack Ken, he just loved him. And so sure enough, eventually, when Pastor William McKinnon invited Ken Parker and his fiance to attend their church, Ken accepted the invitation to an all-black church. And so Ken and his fiance, sure enough, they show up that day at church and, and pastor even had Ken and his fiance stand up and introduce themselves and talk a little bit to the congregation. If you're new with us this morning, we are not gonna make you do that, you're welcome. But he had Ken stand up and so Ken stood up and he said, I'm a member of the KKK, I'm a grand dragon, that wasn't enough for me, so I decided I'm gonna be a Nazi too. And Ken later said their eyes got real big. <laughs> But after the service, they came up and they gave me hugs and they shook me hands and they didn't say a negative word to me. They didn't, didn't tear me down. They just built me up. And in that moment, the love of Jesus began to melt Ken Parker's heart. And that summer, less than a year after the rally, eventually Ken Parker waded into the waters of the Atlantic Ocean with Pastor William McKinnon and he was baptized and he gave his life to Jesus. 
Um, I love that when Ken came out of the water, somebody asked him, Ken, how you feeling? He said, a lot better than the last time I wore a robe. <laughs> it was a funeral and a resurrection. And for some of you today, listen, you need to follow the example of Jairus, you need to follow the example of the bleeding woman, and you need to come to Jesus. And maybe you're sitting there right now and you're thinking, Pastor, I'm good, I, I, I've got belief, like I believe, I've got some faith, but the thing about faith is that faith alone saves. Yes, of course, but faith that saves is never alone. It always comes with action. I mean, think through this story. This woman, there was a whole crowd of people around Jesus. There was a whole bunch of people who were close to Jesus. There was a lot of people bumping into Jesus. There was a lot of people walking with Jesus. There was a lot of people listening to Jesus. There were a lot of people following Jesus, wanting to see a miracle. But there was only one in the crowd who had the faith to actually reach out, to actually go after Jesus in faith that he could heal her. And some of you have been sitting in the crowd. And you've been listening to Jesus and you've been watching Jesus change other people. But maybe it's time for you to have the faith to reach out and say, yeah, I need it to reach out and touch him. We're gonna have the prayer team around the edges of the room today. They're gonna have their green lanyards on toward the end of the service and after the service like they always do. And listen, um, if you need to give your life to Jesus today, do it. And if, if there's something going on in your life today that you need to bring into the light, you need to reach out in faith for healing, do it. We would love to pray over you. We would love to speak the hope and the light and the love of Jesus into your life. Whether it's a big thing or a little thing, some of you need to have the faith to move today. And others of you, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. We're, we're gonna have some, we've had a bunch of baptisms today. We're gonna have some more. We're gonna have some funerals today and they're gonna be fun funerals, all right? And there's no magic in that water back there. It's just tap water. If we dunk you in that water and you don't have faith, you will just come up a wet sinner, okay? That's it. But when we bring the faith and God brings the grace and we meet at this moment of baptism, we are buried with Christ and united with him and raised with Christ and God brings a resurrection out of a funeral. And I know there's excuses in this room right now for why, why you don't come and why you don't reach out and why you don't take the next step. Maybe, maybe they're the same excuses that that woman in Jairus could have used. Maybe you're thinking, I guess this is all there is. But listen, if you're not growing and you're stuck, maybe the reason you're stuck is that you're still spiritually dead and Jesus wants to say to you today, little girl, get up. Little boy, get up. Maybe you're thinking healing is for other people but not for me. Yeah, Jesus can do it to all those other people but no, listen, listen, listen. Even if you were the only person on the planet, God still would have sent his son to die just for you because he wants you to be his daughter. He wants you to be his son. Maybe you're thinking, oh, some other time. But why not today? Why not now? Jesus might want to grab you by the shoulders and say, don't be afraid, just believe. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not good enough. Not good enough. Of course you're not good enough. Of course you're not good enough. We're all just beggars at the door of God's mercy. If we were good enough, it wouldn't be called grace. You don't brush your teeth before you go to the dentist, right? Like, well, I guess we do, but it's dumb. <laughs> you don't have to be righteous enough to earn this. God gives you the righteousness of his son when we're united with Christ. But maybe the excuse you're thinking is, what do people think? I mean, maybe you were baptized as a kid or as a baby. What would my parents think if I did this now? Or, man, if I, if I go walk over to the prayer team, are people gonna think that my life is a mess? Uh, is a mess. <laughs> but my question for you is the same question from earlier. Will your faith in Jesus overpower your excuses? Will you come? Will you admit that, yeah, yeah I need some help? 
Will you take a step forward? Will you even reach out on the baptism tab online if you wanna have a further conversation about it? Will you reach out to one of us? Will you submit a prayer request? Will you say, hey, I just, I need some help here. I got some brokenness, I got some death, I got some darkness, I got some sickness, and I need some healing. Will you listen to the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit when he says to you, don't be afraid, just believe. Get up. Talitha kum. Let's pray. King Jesus, I'm thankful today for how um, interruptible you are. This woman, she interrupted you, and you looked right at her. And so we're going to interrupt whatever's going on in heaven right now, Lord, to bring you our need uh, to muster up what little shred of faith we have to reach out and just try to touch the edge of your garment. Jesus, we really do want to experience you to that degree. We don't want this to just be a set of doctrines that we believe or a place that we come or some rituals that we do. We really want a true and living encounter with you, Jesus. We wanna touch you, we wanna know you. And so my prayer, God, for my brothers and sisters in this room, first and foremost, is that they would feel the affirmation of you upon them. That if they are already following you, that they would know deep down in the bottom of their hearts that they are your daughter, that they are your son, and that they're loved by you. And God, for the ones today who still need to experience a resurrection, that they're dead, God, bring them to life. God, give them the courage to come so we can have a funeral and a birthday party today. You are a God of resurrection. We praise you, Jesus, for what you have done in dying on the cross and rising from the dead to make all things new. And it's in light of that power and that hope that I'm also praying for my brothers and sisters right now who do have some just real pain just some emotional pain, maybe it's regrets, got some words bouncing around in their brain. Maybe it, it is just physical pain. Their, their bodies are just hurting. There's broken relationships in this room. God, so would you, would you bring your healing? Would you give them your peace of knowing that at the end of the day, we are all gonna be freed from our suffering on the day that you return? And until then, Father, we are gonna boldly still pray for real healing because we know you can do that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask this, Father, for your glory, for the world's good, and for our joy in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand and worship our King. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.